Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we talk over recent developments in the public safety labor world. I want to start by talking about inflation and economics. I, I do this once or a year or so. Uh, talk about what the economic trends are, what we can expect in the upcoming months in terms of bargaining. Uh, And I actually don't recall a forecast I have made that's going to be as positive as this one is. Uh, Let's start with inflation. Uh, We have uh, uploaded something for you in the show notes that is the most recent publication from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the Consumer Price Index. Uh, And the bottom line is that the CPI uh, inflation appears to be well under control uh, at this point. We're not seeing the 7, 8, 9, 10% numbers we saw a couple of years ago. Uh, The rate of inflation for all goods and services is 3.4%, but that's been declining Uh, For the second half of the year, inflation has been rising at a rate, an annual rate, of only about 2%. So what's driving that rate of inflation? I've highlighted a few things on the spreadsheet uh, that we have uploaded. Uh, First of all, uh, food, which comprises a large portion of the CPI, uh, all of the items together in the CPI, Uh, make up a market basket that the Bureau of Labor Statistics assigns a value of 100 to. Food accounts for 13% of that 100. And food has been rising at 2.7% annually, uh, and that's lower than the 3.4% rise. So where's where's the difference coming from? Where are the increased costs Uh, that would drive us up to this average of 3.4%. Well, you might be thinking uh, gas, but in fact, that turns out to be incorrect as well. Uh, Fuel oil, the oil we use to heat our homes and use in industrial production, has declined by 15%, 14.7%. And gasoline, gas prices at the pump, have declined by 2.3%. So where's that increase coming from? If gas is declining, if food is not rising at a rate that is equivalent to everything else in the CPI, where are the big numbers coming from? And they are coming from two places. First of all, shelter. Shelter, our home costs, our rental costs, put all that together. Shelter is the single largest component of the consumer price index. It's roughly 35% of the cost of living. And let me go back to food. Food is only 13%. So shelter, much more than food. Uh, And shelter has been rising at the rate of 6.2%. So you put all that together, you take the biggest component of the CPI rising at a rate that is significantly higher, almost double the CPI, and you have a lot of smaller components of the CPI 
rising at a rate that is lower than the CPI, in some cases declining, you put all that together and what you've got is an annual rate of 3.4%, a rate that is continuing to decline. The second piece of economic news that I have for you uh, looks much more to the future, uh, and that is the strength of the economy. Uh, and I put in the show notes for you an article from the Washington Post. I really love this article. Normally when you read articles about uh, economic projections and the like, the political biases of whoever is writing the article come through. And I don't see that in this article. This article does a good job of giving credit where it's due to President Trump and to President Biden and to Treasury Secretary Yellen and to the Fed. It's not like there is a huge bias or any, as nearly as I can tell, uh, in, in this article. So it's a good one if you're looking for background information on the economy. So first of all, probably the biggest uh, driver of how economies are doing is going to be uh, wages. And the, in the U.S., uh, our economic growth has definitely paid off in the form of wages. Uh, so our wages after inflation, after inflation, uh, have grown over the last four years by 2.8%. That is really rare. I've been doing this a long time, and it is rare to see wages grow faster than the rate of inflation. But that's happened in the U.S. So let's compare it to other economies. Uh, so other countries, for example, in the group of seven industrial uh, democracy. Uh, Italy, Italians' wages have shrunk by 9% over that four-year period of time. Germany, the economic juggernaut of Europe, uh, has uh, Germans have seen their wages decline by 7.2%. Uh, and it happens, this has happened all around the country. Uh, what has been the reason for it? seems to be that the spending that the government did uh, to get us out of the economic downfall that was produced by the pandemic, the spending that the government did, did the trick. If you add up all government spending, stimulus checks, loans to small businesses, expanded unemployment, and the like, and uh, of course, spending initiatives like on infrastructure, that all added up to an astonishing 25% of the gross domestic product being devoted to pandemic relief in this country, 25%. What about Germany? 15%. France, 9.6%. Italy, 10%. Even Great Britain, which has economic views very close to ours, only 19%, nobody close to the 25%. And it turns out that that bet, that gamble, whatever you want to call it, paid off. 
because the U.S. economy is right now the strongest in the world. What that does in terms of public sector collective bargaining is to give us a pretty rare opportunity. A strong national economy means that state and local governmental bodies are going to be doing well in their budgets. Not all of them, of course, but on the whole, they're going to be doing well. We've got a serious, serious shortage of public safety workers in this country, most so with police, but also with dispatchers, corrections officers, and firefighters, all of them are hurting for recruits. Uh, one would hope that we take advantage of this good economy and try to address those recruitment and retention issues that are countrywide and seem very, very difficult to solve. Okay, let's get into the cases. Uh, the first one is a case I've been waiting to see for many years. Remember, oh boy, I want to say it was 12 years ago or so, uh, when Wisconsin had a bit of a revolution. Uh, Wisconsin, which had been a fairly reliable Democratic state, became a very Republican state, led by Scott Walker, uh, the governor who later ran for president of the U.S., and one of the first things that the Republican legislature and Governor Walker uh, did was to attack collective bargaining in the public sector. Uh, and they did so by basically, uh, for all non-public safety employees, gutting what was mandatorily negotiable. In fact, virtually nothing became mandatorily negotiable in Wisconsin. The legislature did initially carve out police and fire from all of the cutbacks on collective bargaining, but they got around to police and fire. Now, that's the normal way these things go, is you'll get a conservative legislature that will not want to cut police and fire benefits right away, but they'll cut the public sector benefits of non-public safety employees first, and then they'll get around to cutting uh, police and fire benefits. You've seen that with retirement plans like in Nebraska. You've seen that with bargaining rights in Florida and Iowa, and you certainly have uh, seen that pattern in Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, it took a couple of years for uh, the governor and the legislature to get around to public safety employees. But in uh, 2011, they passed a law removing the right of public safety employees to bargain over health insurance plan design and the impact of plan design on employee compensation. I think everybody probably knows what plan design is, but just so we're all on the same page. Plan design means what are the benefits? What does the uh, insurance company have to pay? What does the employee have to pay? So what's the deductible? What's the stop loss level at which 100% uh, health insurance uh, kicks in? 
Uh, what's the lifetime maximum benefit? What's the annual maximum benefit? All those things are elements of plan design. What network are you in? So what the legislature did was to say to unions, you can't bargain over plan design anymore. And not only that, if the employer exercises the unilateral right to change plan design, and that results in you having a lot more in the way of out-of-pocket expenses, you can't bargain over the impact of your, on your net compensation from those plan design changes. So you can't come in the back door and say, now we need more money because uh, we have a $1,000 deductible. You can't come in the back door and try to bargain for wages. Uh, legislature wasn't done. Uh, it came back uh, a couple of years later to again amend what Wisconsin calls the Municipal Employees Relations Act. And this law prohibited bargaining over, and I'm going to quote here because this is going to be very important, quote, all costs and payments associated with health care coverage plans and the design and selection of health care coverage plans and the impact of such costs and payments and the design and selection of the plans on the wages, hours, and conditions of employment. There was only one thing left that could be bargained about health insurance, and that is how much employees had to pay by way of premiums. Enter the city of Racine, Wisconsin. In 2021, uh, the city petitioned the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission to decide whether it had an obligation to bargain over employee premium contributions if it decided not to offer a health insurance plan to its employees at all. So what the city is doing here is, and it's kind of clever actually, uh, the city is saying, look, uh, that law that was passed in 2013, that law that was passed prohibited bargaining over all costs and payments associated with health care plans, and it prohibited bargaining over the design and selection of plans. So you know what we're doing? We're going to select no plan. We're not going to provide health care benefits to any public safety employees. Uh, and therefore, uh, we are going to be permitted to have employees that they want health care to pay 100% of the premium. The Employment Relations Commission, and by the way, the Employment Relations Commission in Wisconsin, it has not been immune to the political pressures in Wisconsin uh, at all. The Employment Relations Commission says, yeah, city, uh, uh, you're right. Uh, under the collective bargaining law, the city is free to avoid bargaining over the entire issue of employee premiums simply by refusing to offer health insurance to its police officers and firefighters. Well, police and fire weren't going to take that sitting down, so they appealed uh, to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Politics 
infect the Wisconsin court system drastically. You may have seen that uh, earlier this year when one of the biggest elections in the country uh, in terms of contributions was for a single seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, a single seat that changed that court from being four to three in one direction to four to three in the other direction. But this case isn't all the way up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, this is simply in what's called the Wisconsin Circuit Court. And the court rejects the city's argument. Uh, the court saying, look, city, if you're right, that leads to an absurd result. And that's something we try to avoid when we're rendering opinions. Uh, the court says, and I'm quoting, public safety workers must have the right to bargain on this issue because the statute said they could bargain over premiums. And employers are prohibited from refusing to bargain. The right is only meaningful if employers are required to offer a health insurance plan. And the court says, look, the legislature when it was busy saying pretty much everything about health insurance was non-negotiable, it could have chosen to prohibit all collective bargaining over health care. But it didn't. Back to the court's opinion. The clear intent of the way in which the legislature wrote these statutes is that the rights provided to employees to collectively bargain are only limited as expressly stated, that the statute preserves the right to bargain over premium contributions and prohibits employers from refusing to bargain over that subject, means employers must offer some form of health care coverage. And so the court rules in favor of the unions. So what happens next? It's kind of impossible to tell. Uh, I don't know what's in the mind of the city of Racine, but if it is like pretty much every city in this country and can't hire police and firefighters in order to fill staffing complements, I'm guessing the city's no longer going to be interested in offering a benefit package that has no health care benefits. Another topic I talk to you about, oh, about once a year, uh, falls under the heading of final and binding arbitration means final and binding arbitration. Uh, and we have a case that stands for that proposition. And oh my, does it have a fact pattern, a fact pattern where if ever a court is going to find that there are exceptions to final and binding arbitration. This case would be on the list of one where you try to uh, find exceptions. So what goes on in this case? This comes out of the Michigan State Police. Uh, the trooper, it's an unnamed female trooper. And remember in these discipline cases, very often the names of the people involved uh, are not mentioned. They're anonymized by courts and by arbitrators. Uh, so this is a trooper 
who was terminated after a string of incidents at an event that was sponsored by her union, uh, sponsored by the Michigan State Police Troopers Association. By the way, one of the uh, very great state police unions in the country they have up there in Michigan. Uh, I've had the good fortune to deal with them very slightly over the years, a highly professional organization. And the facts I'm about to re relate uh, are certainly not typical of the Troopers Association. So what happens is at, uh, at the event, at the social event, uh, the trooper was intoxicated and allegedly, and I got to quote this sort of this stuff uh, from time to time, allegedly, quote, wedged her fingers into the anal crevice of a co-worker while he was walking next to his wife. That make made the co-worker jump forward, go figure, uh, at which point the female trooper tried to grab his genitals. Um, the female trooper struck a second male co-worker in the genitals. That happened to be caught on surveillance video. And she was also caught on surveillance video attempting to grab, quote, the anal crease and genitals of a third male co-worker and attempted to use physical manipulation tactics quote, traditionally utilized for purposes of gaining compliance from citizens uh, in order to do so. That's enough, right? Don't you think? Except there were more surveillance videos capturing her grabbing the genitals of other male co-workers. Uh, so, of course, uh, the State police finds out about this. Trooper suspended with pay pending an internal affairs investigation. Uh, there's an intervening criminal investigation, and the trooper is charged with several accounts of assault and battery, uh, including two uh, serious charges of fourth degree uh, criminal sexual conduct. Uh, the trooper eventually serves 21 days in jail for several counts of assault and battery, uh, that's uh, swapping out uh, the dismissal of the criminal sexual conduct charges. After the sentencing, uh, the Michigan State Police cranks up the internal affairs investigation, interviews the trooper, and ultimately chooses to terminate her. The Troopers Association files a grievance and an arbitrator reinstates the trooper. Why? What could be the basis for the reinstatement given the guilty plea, time in jail, and the fact that most of the salient facts aren't contested? Uh, the arbitrator says, look, employer, you've established a, scent, a pattern of discipline in these sorts of cases and it has not resulted in the termination of troopers like this one who had a good record with no prior discipline. Uh, so you've dealt with other cases where employees engaged in very serious off-duty misconduct while they were intoxicated, just like this trooper, uh, and you did not 
terminate them. And so uh, arbitrator says, you're going to have to reinstate her. Michigan State Police challenges that, files a court challenge, uh, says that the reinstatement would violate public policy because troopers are statutorily required to be of good moral character and that the arbitrator uh, exceeded her uh, jurisdiction because the employer was given discretion under the collective bargaining agreement to terminate troopers for just cause. Uh, a trial court uh, agrees with the state, concludes that the arbitrator exceeded her authority by mitigating the grievance punishment. After The trial court ends up saying, look, if you found just cause for any discipline, that ends the analysis, arbitrator. You can't reduce the punishment. So now the Troopers Association appeals and we're up at the Michigan Court of Appeals and the Michigan Court of Appeals says exactly what I started off this little segment with. Final and binding arbitration means final and binding arbitration. Uh, and the court says, look, you've given the arbitrator the authority to decide whether or not there's just cause for termination. And the contract, by using the term just cause, that gives an arbitrator the authority to mitigate a penalty unless the contract specifically says Otherwise, here, says the court, you gave the arbitrator the authority to decide whether or not there was just cause to support the trooper's termination. There was no language saying that a terminable offense is not subject to arbitration. End of case. Final and binding arbitration means final and binding arbitration. And look, uh, this is uh, a case with sensational facts, right? And it's a labor arbitration case. But I submit to you that these decisions that courts around the country routinely issue upholding binding arbitration, they have very little to do with labor relations and unions and police and fire unions. They are instead about the principle of whether or not courts should be deferring to the decisions of all arbitrators. Think about it for a moment, how prevalent arbitration is in your life. You ever receive one of those notices saying you're part of a class action and uh, you have a choice whether to opt in or opt out of the whatever the settlement has been reached in the class action. If you read that fine print, you know, the pages and pages of two-point uh, font, if you read that fine print, you may well find that you've agreed, if you agree to take the money, you've agreed to binding arbitration of any disputes with regard to that settlement. Bought a car lately? You may well have agreed to binding arbitration. Got a credit card? Bought a house? 
Finding arbitration is all over in our lives. And think what would happen to the dockets of the court systems in this country if the decisions of arbitrators were freely appealable. That's why courts are saying at their heart, you agree to binding arbitration. You agree to a dispute resolution system as an alternative to court. You're stuck with it. And don't come to us simply because you don't like the result. Next up, I want to talk about a case involving discrimination on the basis of union activity. Uh, and before I get into the facts of this case, uh, I want to talk about how somewhat strange these cases may look uh, if you haven't had any experience with them. So these cases are based on almost always state statutes or uh, whatever the collective bargaining law might be under a local ordinance or a charter provision, but some law somewhere that says that you cannot discriminate against somebody because of union activity. Very often those clauses make their way into collective bargaining agreements or memoranda of understanding. Uh, and what's unusual when you find a case involving alleged discrimination on the basis of union activity is that the employee's misconduct that led to discipline by the employer, the employee's misconduct isn't challenged. Everybody is in agreement that the employee did what they did. And instead, the focus is on the employer's motivation. Uh, and, and that's kind of an unusual sort of case because normally in a disciplinary case, we're just focused on what the employee did. We're very rarely focused on what the employer's motivation may be. But that motivation is at the heart of these union discrimination cases. So uh, what is this case all about? Uh, this case, you would think, when you look at the facts, uh, should come from a very small city or county. It just has all the earmarks of small town politics, but it doesn't. It comes from Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, that has a third of a million people. Uh, so it's not, this is not really small town politics. So what goes on here is uh, you have a, a correctional officer uh, by the name of Scott Kennedy. Uh, he's very involved in the union. He served in various positions in the union. And in the critical time period, which is between 2019 and 2023, Kennedy uh, was the president of the local union. Kennedy had an aggressive style. He didn't contest that. And he did not get along with either the warden uh, or the Director of Human Resources. And in October 2021, a pretty serious event in this history happens. Kennedy testifies before the prison board. Prison board is the governing body of uh, the uh, prison in Westmoreland County. Kennedy testifies before the 
prison board that the warden and the HR director were wasting money on litigating discipline against him, Kennedy. And also in the process of making this statements indicated uh, to the board that the warden and the human resources director were withholding information from the board. Now, both the HR director and the warden uh, were in attendance at this meeting. They didn't like what they heard, and they refused to accept or return Kennedy's phone calls from that point forward. Okay, fast forward almost another year. We're now in August 2022. Kennedy has a girlfriend. She makes domestic assault allegations against him. And as a result, Kennedy is the subject of felony uh, and misdemeanor charges. Kennedy reports the charges to the county, uh, but before anything can happen on the disciplinary front, uh, the charges, the criminal charges, were dropped before trial. In October 2022, uh, Kennedy pleads guilty to uh, what are called summary non-traffic citations for off-duty public drunkenness and disorderly conduct. Here it comes. He did not report those citations to the county. Later in the month, the county learns of the citations, puts Kennedy on unpaid administrative leave pending an investigation, and ultimately terminates his employment. Okay, there's a red flag in that last sentence that I just uttered, right? In your employment, think about your employer, or if you're the employer, think about your practices. If somebody failed to report uh, citations, off-duty citations, uh, for public drunkenness and disorderly conduct, you conduct an investigation into them, right? But would you put them on unpaid administrative leave pending an investigation? When I saw that, I thought, oh, I think you can see where this one is, is going. At any rate, uh, Kennedy ultimately terminated, and the union challenges this, at least in part, the court's opinion doesn't indicate whether or not a grievance is filed, but the union challenges it in part by filing an unfair labor practice charge with the State Labor Relations Board, and the allegation is, county, you have unlawfully discriminated against Kennedy on the basis of his protected union activity. What protected union activity? What is it the county wants to get Kennedy for? The union alleges that the county's true motivation for terminating Kennedy was the October 2021 prison board meeting where he antagonized the warden and the HR director and the subsequent fallout from that. So uh, how, how do these cases end up getting litigated? Because you know some things are going to happen, right? Uh, you know uh, that the county is going to come in and say, 
oh, we weren't motivated by uh, the desire to retaliate against them. We were just taking discipline against somebody who violated our rules. And we have a rule that says that if you got any criminal convictions of any nature, you have to report it to us. So we did not have an impure motivation. Uh, and then you know what the union is going to say. The union's going to say something like, yeah, that's what you say. But what about everybody else? And are there any stray comments that the employer made that indicate that its motivation might not have been as pure as it could be. Um, and here's what the evidence showed. The evidence showed that the new union president, Kennedy can't continue to be union president when he's fired, the new union president uh, testified that the warden indicated to him on multiple occasions that the new president was a lot easier to work with than Kennedy. The union also gives evidence that at least one other county employee kept her job after incurring a driving while intoxicated uh, charge and not just any old DWI charge. Uh, she was four times over the legal limit for blood alcohol content for people who are driving. So the labor board hears all this evidence and ends up concluding that the county's motivation was in fact uh, discriminatory. I'm going to quote a little bit from the labor board's opinion. Um, the labor board says, we have both direct and indirect evidence of anti-union animus. Uh, directly, we have the warden's comments that Kennedy was difficult to work with. Uh, we also have the fact that the warden and the HR director stopped communicating with Kennedy in his role as union president. Indirect evidence we have is we've got evidence that no corrections officer had previously been terminated for failing to report a summary criminal offense, which is what this was. And look, even when Kennedy himself was facing uh, felony and misdemeanor charges, the county took no disciplinary action against him. Result, uh, the labor board ends up concluding that the union met its burden of proof uh, that the county's motivation against Kennedy was the impermissible motivation of retaliating for Kennedy's union activity. What's the remedy? Reinstatement with full back pay. So uh, interesting cases, right? Uh, employee in this case clearly engages in misconduct. And what happens is that the employer's motivation is illegal. I want to finish up today uh, talking about the notion of constructive discharge. Got a good case out of Illinois that uh, talks about that principle. So first of all, what is constructive discharge and how does it come into play? Uh, 
And this actually is a pretty common principle in the law. Uh, with some regularity, employees who resign, who quit their jobs, later file lawsuits claiming that their working conditions were so oppressive that their resignation should be considered as a constructive discharge that subjects the employer to potential liability. Uh, constructive discharge is very, very difficult to prove. Uh, courts assume that when an employee quits, they mean it. Uh, they're making a voluntary decision to end their employment. Uh, and it's a very high bar to show the sort of oppressive working conditions that could justify a constructive discharge claim. And that's something that police officer Timothy Hofstad of the Northeast Illinois Regional Commuter Railroad Corporation, known as METRA, uh, showed. So what goes on in Hofstad's case? Uh, Hofstad is a canine officer, and he discloses to the city that he had to take prescription medication uh, for a couple of different medical conditions. He had to take Adderall and Concerta, probably pronouncing that wrong, for his ADD, and he had to take Narco for his migraines and a wrist injury. On a couple of occasions, Metro's Medical Services Department approves Hofstad's request for an exemption from Metro's drug policy. Uh, but then in 2018, uh, Hofstad has to undergo a physical that includes a random drug test. During the random drug test, Hofstad disclosed that he took Adderall for his ADD and uh, tells the people conducting the drug test he expected to test positive for uh, amphetamines. He did, um, and a, not just amphetamine, but also hydrocodone and hydromorphone. Uh, and that means that the medical review officer is going to swing into action. He tries to contact Hofstad three times uh, to determine if Hofstad had a legitimate explanation, such as a valid prescription, to justify the positive test results. He doesn't hear from Hofstad within 48 hours, and so he reports a positive test result quote, due to no contact with donor within 48 hours, end quote. Metro relieves Hofstad of duty pending an investigation. Uh, Hofstad agrees to participate in the rehabilitation uh, portion of Metro's drug policy. There's a lengthy uh, process that follows including METRA's mandatory report to the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standards Board. Um, and eventually, when this is all done, uh, the medical review officer changes the results of the drug test to negative, uh, and Hofstad returns to work. But it doesn't go easy when he returns to work. There's a variety of disputes between Hofstad and METRA, and eventually Hofstad says, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. He resigns to take a full-time position with the Genoa Police Department in Illinois. Hofstad then files a federal court lawsuit alleging that he had been constructively discharged. 
so how does the federal court look at this case? Um, the court says, first of all, here's the definition of constructive discharge. And I'm going to quote two sentences because the court does a really good job of this. Quote, constructive discharge occurs when, from the standpoint of a reasonable employee, the working conditions become unbearable. Generally, such cases require a plaintiff to show working conditions even more egregious than that required for a hostile work environment claim because employees are generally expected to remain employed while seeking redress, thereby allowing an employer to address a situation before it causes the employee to quit. In other words, uh, you want the employee to communicate with the employer about whatever it is the terrible working conditions are to give the employer a chance to fix things. Um, so, how do those principles apply in Hofstede's case? Hofstede says, well, I've lost, I lost a bunch of benefits. I lost my position as a dog handler when I was relieved of duty. That means I lost a higher uh, canine handler wage. I lost access to my own patrol car. I had to use a fleet car. And I no longer had the benefits of having of not having a specific starting location or specific assignments. Uh, I became, in essence, a patrol officer. I had to go where I was told when I was told. Um, uh, what does the court say to this? The court says, quote, in his new role on return to work, Hofstad received the pay differential for being a certified field training officer to bolster his patrolman pay. The additional changes to his job do not rise to the unbearable working conditions required to support a constructive discharge claim. Constructive discharge typically is found only in cases involving threats of physical harm or truly outrageous emotional abuse. So, uh, and this is a very typical constructive discharge case. Uh, I'll tell you, if employees win one out of a hundred of these, it's a good day for employees. It's very, very hard for an employee to make the claim that working conditions have become so onerous that the only option that a reasonable employee would have would be to quit. Well, that's it for the February 2024 edition of First Thursday. Uh, hope to see you in New Orleans, March 6th through 8th, for our East of the Rockies seminar on collective bargaining for public safety employees. We've actually never held a seminar in New Orleans. Uh, love the town. Uh, it should be fascinating to be there. Uh, and we got a great lineup of speakers for you uh, to talk about collective bargaining in the public safety world. Uh, I'll be there. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it myself. Uh, maybe even see if I can fit in a, one of those crazy bayou tours and uh, the shallow bottom boats where uh, you've got people attracting alligators by feeding them marshmallows.
but I digress. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining me uh, for this edition of First Thursday. This is Will Aitchison signing off.